Welcome to the Georgetown Public Policy Review Series. I'm Shane McCarthy. I'm Jason Berger. And today we're speaking with Governor Martin O'Malley, a current resident fellow at the Georgetown Institute of Politics and Public Service. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us today. Absolutely, gentlemen. Glad to be with you. Glad to be at Georgetown. Yeah. Uh, so, so first, um, we'd like to start out by asking you about um, recent news, um, FBI Director James Comey's recent statement. Um, as a former mayor of Baltimore and governor of Maryland, um, you've dealt with and been involved in the cross-section between law enforcement and politics. We've now heard the spin ad nauseum um, from both the Trump and Clinton camps. But I think something that has gotten lost in the weeds is that um, the DOJ's longstanding policy is to not intervene in politics um, so close to an election, especially a presidential election. Judging from your past experiences as governor and mayor, do you, you agree with um, Director Comey's decision to release this statement, um, and do you think it was appropriate? Yeah, I, I don't believe that it was appropriate. I believe that there's good reason for that longstanding policy, and I'm, I'm puzzled as to why after what was, uh, uh, by all reports, including Director Comey's, an exhaustive year-long review of every possible email and in you know uh and and server connected to hillary clinton and his expression uh that he didn't find anything that was criminally actionable there that he would then go 10 days beforehand and throw in this this sort of uh, uh make this sort of statement while people are voting all across the country in the most consequential uh election uh, since Abraham Lincoln's re-election during the Civil War, so I don't, I don't get it. I think it's outrageous, in fact. And uh, you know, if if there were new information that came to light, or if they had failed to actually conduct the exhaustive investigation that he claimed they conducted, mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't see why that needs to. I don't, I, I think that he could have uh, updated his testimony as easily in seven days as now, uh, unless he were willing to come out with this information. But what he said is he doesn't, he says it may or may not uh, have anything to do with what he had investigated before. And uh, uh, I don't know if this was a news report or if he has actually said that there aren't any emails uh, to or from mm -hmm. Secretary Clinton right. in what he's looking at. Right. So I don't, I don't, I don't understand. But look, the FBI well, one thing I do understand from the FBI is that they move at their own pace, mm -hmm. and uh, and they uh, and that pace uh, generally has two speeds: slow and real slow. <laughs> so you know, one thing that we're always learning at McCord is the importance of going back and evaluating what you've done in the policy realm. Um, you know, when you were governor, you placed a big emphasis on tracking the progress of your goals on a variety of policies. I was wondering if you could talk about this a little bit, just what you thought in terms of uh, metric-based uh, tracking standards for good governments and for policy. Sure. And let's try to make it interesting for a podcast in the absence of, uh, <laughs> in the absence of uh, colored slides, uh, graphs moving in the right or wrong direction. Right, exactly. And dots on maps. Uh, what I saw when I was on the Baltimore City Council was uh, a new way of governing emerging in New York, in particular in the NYPD. Uh, we had all seen the old 
TV shows of Dragnet where in the precinct, you know, you look at the map and there are little pushpins marking where the burglaries happened six months ago. But what was new because of uh, geographic information technology and that sort of software that was becoming pretty commonplace in a sudden sort of way in the early 90s was the ability to plot where crime had happened not six months ago when Buck Officer Buck, who's on light duty with a sprained knee, is pushing the pin, you know, the pins into the big map on the precinct wall. But you could make it happen uh, practically real time. You could see where crimes happened 24 hours ago, uh, the 48 hours ago, 72 hours ago, over the course of several weeks, and you could plot in a pretty simple and graphic way what hours of the day the armed robberies happened in subway locations. And that's how Comstat was born by a by a, a visionary guy named Jack Maple, who started deploying his detectives and his officers to where the crime was actually happening, when it was happening. And he soon made the cover of New York Sunday Magazine, New York Times Sunday Magazine. He was plucked by Bill Bratton, one of the best public administrators in this generation in any nation, uh, who was commissioner of the NYPD then. And he put Jack in charge of tactics and strategy, this, lieutenant, this subway lieutenant. So I saw that and I would campaign in Baltimore during, uh, not campaign, when I was on the city council, I would urge, argue, cajole, push our city to learning what we could learn from New York and doing the same thing with policing in our city. Uh, in fact, I ran a whole campaign on it. And um, there wasn't a day that went by when we weren't talking about not only criminal justice and more effective policing, but when we were also talking about racial injustice and brutal and excessive force and discourteous policing. But in the course of that campaign that summer, we all came to agree that it wasn't right that we'd have one standard of justice in poor parts of our city and, a, and another standard in wealthier parts. And we came together and we forged a precious consensus to put Baltimore on a path for the biggest crime reduction in America over the next 10 years. Um, uh, so what does that have to do with this new way of governing? I took it just from policing and I applied it enterprise-wide. And for that, Baltimore uh, and my administration was given the Innovations in Government Award from the Kennedy School at Harvard in 2002. The word we invented for this process of bringing people together in a timely fashion every two weeks in collaborative circles around the map to see where the complaints were actually coming in from and what our deployment time was, adjusting tactics and strategies, relentlessly following up. That process we dubbed CityStat, C-I-T-I-S-T-A-T. And it is now the way every major city in America is governed. They call it different things in different places. In uh, uh, Denver, they call it PeakStat. Uh, it is, in essence, a common platform for performance management where the leader puts him and his management circle in the center of that emerging truth every day, and where you have 311 for all city services on the front end. We also deployed that enterprise-wide when I was elected governor, called it StateStat. Has not uh, received the as, as rapid a, you know, adoption among governors. Um, part of that's attributable to the fact that most of us don't know what the hell our governor does on any given day, whereas all of us can see whether our mayor is working or not. Right. She's either doing the job or she's not, and we can all see it visibly. Uh, last year, the health of the Chesapeake Bay was the cleanest it's been since 1985, and that was attributable to the actions we took on land measured over time 
in places, namely the 10 river sheds in our state, and that we got the other five states in the watershed to also govern in that way. Uh, you can, you should be able to tell us whether we're doing more in cover crops this year than we were last year, whether we're upgrading more of our wastewater treatment plants with the highest and best technology, ditto with stormwater and septic systems. These are not infinite, unmeasurable, numberless acts of, you know, uh, courage. These are actually quantifiable. And mm -hmm. so that's how I governed. I think that is the new way of governing. I know it is. I've seen it emerging in cities all across the country and indeed across the world. In fact, I was down in Buenos Aires two weeks ago where their new mayor is setting up a, 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 the same sort of system. Mm -hmm. That was a long answer. <laughs> so just quickly following up on that, you know, we've seen successes in cities, counties. Do you think that there's a good way we can start to apply you know, these metrics and these programs on a federal level? Yeah, it's bubbling up. It's it's happening. Um, the best example of it so far on the federal level, uh, in a nationwide example, was the Recovery and Reinvestment Act. Mm. There was there were grave predictions that there would be waste, fraud, and corruption. Tons of people would go to jail because of all of the money that we couldn't track. But in fact, we could, and we did. Maryland was the first, and with that common platform and the open data of the. Uh, uh, federal budget appropriations, we were able to show all 5.7 million of our residents where those dollars were falling, what counties they were falling in. We could put the dots on the map for capital projects. We could tell you how many people were getting uh, additional uh, unemployment assistance mm -hmm. by county. And once we started doing that, and we made and uh, the uh, GIS company Esri uh, made it available for free to every state in the nation. I would wake up every morning during that time when we thought, I mean, we weren't sure how much lower the limbo bar would go in terms of lost people, losing homes, losing jobs, losing incomes. Uh, so every day I would look at the map online and another state would be colored in as moving to this platform. It was a great underreported story, but it was, it's really what people expect of their federal government. Mm -hmm. uh, I was on a plat, I was on a stage the other day with the, uh, Carly Fiorina, and her her main thesis, her argument was uh, there's way too much regulation, and that's killing job creation. And the other thing that hurts us is that every dollar we send to our federal government is wasted, and nobody can tell you where it goes. Well, actually, we should be able to tell you where it goes, and people are not wrong to expect at least the same level of customer service from their national government that they get from their bank or from buying a book online at Amazon. We should be able to tell people where their dollars go and what they're being spent on. And hopefully we will. There is a program called FedStat at the federal level. Uh, and hopefully that will grow in successive administrations. President Obama's a couple of his cabinet secretaries, uh, uh, Sean Donovan, had a HUD stat. Uh, he used to uh, run his department that way. The NASA administrator similarly has a performance management regimen, but it hasn't yet gone enterprise-wide. Instead of deploying it as a tool for the bean counting um, budget people, it's really important that the leader make this his or her tool for accomplishing meaningful goals, not unlimited goals, but defined strategic goals for the nation and that he or she you know, uh, own uh, the map and the process and create a, 
a circle of collaboration, of problem solving, of asking questions, not with blame, but with an honest search for better ways to get things done. Um, okay, so just changing topics a little bit. Earlier this month, the Paris Agreement was officially ratified. Um, given the importance of this deal, how do you think the next president will prioritize climate change? And do you think it is necessary for the Senate to approve the um, a resolution of ratification because President Obama um, he, he ratified with executive action? Yeah, I think uh, it would be good if the Senate would do that, but that shouldn't be a reason for the president not to move forward with with implementing it in mm -hmm. any event with, uh, with uh, you know, budget action and, and the other things that we can do within our own federal government and our own carbon footprint. Right. I mean, this is all about everybody taking stock of the transformation that transforms everything. Uh, and uh, we have a lot of really innovative stuff actually going on in the uh, Department of Navy uh, and what, uh, what the United States Navy is doing on on this score to reduce its carbon footprint and, and develop uh, renewable fuels. Um, so it would be nice if the Senate would do it, uh, but I think that the next president, uh, and I hope that president will be Hillary Clinton, I heard her say in the only mention of climate, <laughs> it's outrageous, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. In three nationally televised debates, not one of those also smart, uh, oh so smart uh, journalists asked a single question about climate change. About climate change. Yeah. I mean, given its nexus to conflict in the world, to mm -hmm. south-north migrations, and not to mention sea level rise, and you know the uh, the, the threats to, to human life. Mm -hmm. But I did hear Hillary Clinton say something that I was fond of saying again and again and again during my brief shining campaign, which was that climate change is the greatest business opportunity to come to the United States in a hundred years. And I, I believe that if the next president wraps this challenge in the banner of prosperity rather than catastrophe, I think you can get a lot of innovation on board. Mm -hmm. And it's also one of those areas not unlike uh, where, where the flexibility of federalism and the ability of states to move forward even before their federal government, as we saw in marriage equality mm -hmm. on, a, on a legislative and rights issue, I think on an issue of innovation and uh, building a sustainable economy that works for all, not just this generation, but the next. I think you'll see states moving out like that. Indeed, they already are. Uh, California with its 50% renewable portfolio standard. I was proud that Maryland, we took ours up from 7% to 20%, but the Californians are making us look like pikers. Uh, Hawaii, their new governor, declared a goal of having uh, Hawaii 100%, having a 100% clean electric grid in that island nation that like many island uh, people imports fossil fuels to burn instead of uh, harnessing the renewable assets at their disposal, whether tidal or, or wind or solar. So I, I think I think this is going, I know that this is going to be the, the, de the defining dynamic along with technology of, uh, of what it takes to build an economy that's inclusive and sustainable. So I, I, I hope the next president takes advantage of it. We could use a, a high-level policy coordinator mm -hmm. for this stuff because it's... The climate czar. Yeah, although I, 
I've always wondered about that czar term. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it, it got used once, and then everyone yeah. felt they had to kind of keep it going over the course of. Yeah, I guess. But who the who the hell ever gave the czars credit for effective governance? Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, better to call it the climate Swede or something. I don't know what you call it. <laughs> They're clever people in Sweden. <laughs> They're even further ahead of, of California in terms of their renewable portfolio and what they've learned how to do with clean tech and water and clean water. Uh, so a high-level policy coordinator that's close and trusted by the president needs to do this because it takes you – know, collaboration is the new competition. Mm-hmm. And most failings in public policy happen not because of a lack of specialization, but because of a lack of collaboration and coordination. At least that's my been my experience. And the further up the uh, 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 up scale you go, from municipal to state to national, the more imperative collaboration becomes to the successful execution of any policy. So I think it needs to be somebody with more SWAT than even an energy secretary. Mm-hmm. It needs to be somebody that can pull together the component parts right. and make a greater whole. So, you know, one other issue where, you know, despite all the, the, the partisanship and divide, we have seen a little bit of bipartisan cooperation is on the area of criminal justice reform. We see, you know, efforts being made by Democrats, Republicans in the Senate and the House to start to move forward on some of these issues, whether it be mass incarceration, reevaluating the war on drugs, etc. Why do you think that you know this has sort of drawn the bipartisan support it has, and what do you see going forward are going to be some of the ways that we can begin to address some of these issues that we have as a nation? Yeah, great, great question. Um, along with, along with uh, climate and the Bay, our environment, if you will, the health of this planet, I have been drawn like a, a moth to fire back again and again and again to uh, the issues of, of criminal justice and racial injustice. And I, I tended to, uh, you know, the center of that wound uh, in my years as a councilman and as mayor of Baltimore. Um, I think there's a couple reasons why we're finding some common ground here. I mean, one, with the passage of time, I'd like to believe that as thinking human beings, we figured out what works and what does not. And when we come upon things that do work, uh, we take them to scale, like Comstat for managing police departments, uh, uh, civilian review boards, uh, internal affairs units that are actually staffed uh, properly so that, that we can police the police. Because any group of professionals, I don't care whether they're doctors, lawyers, or priests, you got to have an integrity internal integrity component to it. Um, when we find things that work, we, we should do more of them. When we find things that don't work, whether it's the disparities in crack and powder cocaine sentencing or, uh, or the death penalty, which we repealed in Maryland and which the Democratic Party is advocating repealing as a nation, we should stop doing those things. And that, so uh, the... Um, Another interesting uh, piece of this uh, that I noticed in the National Governors Association, uh, all of us were under tremendous budgetary pressures. Brian Schweitzer, who was the governor of Montana, would say with a slightly humorous quip, 
that uh, as governors, we educate, we medicate, and we incarcerate. That's our responsibility. Um, and that cost of incarceration was something that uh, was uh, that every governor had to take a second look at. In our own state, we drove down our incarceration rate to 20-year lows during my time. We did a lot better job of understanding the uh, causes of recidivism and the benefits of reentry. We if we cut our recidivism rate from 50% down to 40%, what's that? That's like a 20% reduction in eight years, which I do believe was the largest of any of the 50 states. Some other governors, Republican governors, were were taking um, uh, were willing to uh, take some political risks that probably came from the fact. Uh, well, I'm. Uh, how do I say this kindly? Uh, some other, I'll just state it. Some Republican governors were able to take greater risks than many of us as Democrats who were sensitive, probably more politically sensitive to the notion that uh, paroling someone mm. early uh, and then having them offend again and shoot or kill another human being uh, would be something that would come back directly on us uh, either uh, in a general election or in a primary. The Willie Horton effect. The Willie Horton effect or the human being effect. Yeah. I mean, I spent all of my time, as a vast majority of my time at community meetings in Baltimore and places where year in and year out for 20 years, 350 young black men were shot to death on the corners. I mean, there wasn't a gymnasium where I spoke to people where half the hands wouldn't go up where people knew somebody or had a son or a grandson who had been murdered in, in these drug wars. And so perhaps uh, uh, for whatever the cause was, some Republican governors were able to take some even greater chances. The other thing that's come to the fore only lately is the uh, uh, value of predictive analytics in assessing whether someone's truly a risk to, to commit another violent crime upon their release. And you, in other words, by crunching the numbers of what the big data tells you has been the history for the last 20 years. And that's a pretty big uh, pool of uh, data from which to identify certain probabilistic indicators. And then we're able to better assess whether it's the parole commission uh, assessing release or whether it's our assessing the level of supervision required when a person is out, and also the time frame within which to provide that additional supervision. In other words, what our numbers showed us was that people, when they commit another crime, are most likely to do it in their first 90 days out. Mm -hmm. It also showed us that they're far more likely to commit another crime if they don't have a home to go to when they're released, if you just give them their shit in a plastic bag and tell them good luck, you know, find a, find a bridge. Right. right. Interesting. So I think we've got time for about one more. Um, one other issue that we wanted to cover was uh, immigration, something where we used to see a lot of similar bipartisan support, but over the course of this campaign, it's sort of, you know, not delving into all of the rhetoric that's been thrown around, but that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. Uh, you know, just a couple of years ago, we saw the DREAM Act begin to gain traction in the Senate and then sort of get put by the wayside, uh, you know, getting shot down. How are we going to be able to sort of get back on track with immigration reform, get back to you know implementing real reforms and not just sort of having to deal with these these talking points and this rhetoric that's come out over the course of the election? 
Yeah, well, first things first, we have to fight our way through the somewhat predictable uh, cycle of immigrant bashing and xenophobia that's been with our country since our founding, at least since the first, uh, you know, at least since the eight, early 1800s. I mean, if, in one of my classes for the discussion group, one of my, I'm not supposed to call them classes, one of my discussion groups at the, uh, uh, at the Institute here, of politics uh, at Georgetown and the McCourt School of Public Policy was about immigration reform. And we looked at Thomas Nast cartoons from the 1870s when my great grandparents, either from Ireland or Germany, came here. And it was cartoons about the need to build a big wall around the United States, about these ships with these uh, masses of would be criminals that were all, you know, flocking in hordes to America's cities and not into the farmlands. Uh, and so this comes around every 40 years. We have to fight our way through it. Uh, uh, and I believe that we will. I'm, I'm hopeful that Donald Trump's candidacy will be repudiated. Uh, and if not now, you uh, know, uh, when. Uh, so, and once we repudiate that, I think we can get back to, I think my hope is that the fever will break. And my sense, not on that climate change, is we have to wrap this in what's best for American wages. I think that as Democrats, we have fallen in the trap of talking about uh, compassion and fairness uh, like exclusively on the issue of immigration and not enough about economics and prosperity, opportunity, and common sense wage and labor policies. Yeah. Creating an underclass of 11 million people who very often have to work off of the books and outside of the banking system, uh, who cannot organize themselves, uh, just wander through Trump's hotel in Las Vegas. You'll see a lot of Latino people working there. Wonder how many, you know, uh, are allowed to join a union. Uh, <laughs> and so, um, you know, creating an underclass is a drag on wages. Creating 11 million people who work off the books is a drag on, on everybody else's wages. By getting them on the books, uh, that's good for the United States. And also all the other arguments on innovation, uh, the numbers are so clear that uh, people who have risked it all to come here and start anew are also far more willing to take the risk required to start a business. Uh, the, the sort of pooled capital instinct that newly arriving immigrant groups have, uh, a healthy instinct. Uh, all of that can flourish and, and add to our economy, but it's like throwing a wet blanket on it when you have this sort of draconian break up the family type of immigration policies. Uh, Roosevelt talked about the four freedoms. One of them was f freedom from fear. Right now, there are little boys and girls throughout our country who have only known this country as their country, go to school all day and come home wondering if their homes have, you know, their doors have been kicked in and their moms and dads have been taken away. That's not a way for a free people to build an inclusive economy. So I think that we need to get back to what's in the best interest of wages in the United States. Frame the question that way. And I do believe, as on infrastructure investments, that there's a lot of Republican business support for comprehensive immigration reform. Um, that's what I think. I always found it sad, you know, there are some of the same Republicans in our state, uh, in the legislature, who would vote against the DREAM Act, vote against driver's licenses for immigrants, would come see me as a group from the Eastern Shore and beg me to call Barbara Mikulski and help get new worker visas, more worker visas <laughs> for the crab picking and the other, you know, uh, agri agricultural and 
waterman uh, industries on the eastern shore it was maddening i'd look at them and say do you not understand <laughs> why one of these things does not go with the other uh, huh. yeah. um so we have time for one more question right go for it okay uh so one of my favorite podcasts um ezra klein uh at the end of every single one of his interviews he asks his interviewees can you uh, give our listeners three books or three white papers that you've read um, at some point in your career or recently that uh, you think would be helpful for the students who are listening to these po this podcast or for our for our audience. Sure, uh, I would say um, one of them is coming out very shortly. It's by Richard Florida, and it's called working title is The New Urban Crisis, but it's all about the convergence of urbanization mm -hmm. and the drive for a healthier planet coming together. Uh, that's one uh, by Richard Florida. Another one on governing and delivering results, uh, I would say, is the four disciplines yeah, The Four Disciplines of Execution. That's by uh, Chris McChesney, M-C, uh, M small c, capital C-H-E-S-N-E-Y. And then uh, another book, another book. I would say, uh, I'm going to say Anamkara by John O'Donohue. That's a book on Celtic spirituality. John O'Donoghue passed away just a few years ago, but his stuff is very clearly written in, uh, in an Irish version of English, <laughs> which translates nicely to this side of the Atlantic, I think. Exactly. Governor, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you for agreeing to be a fellow in the first place, I should say. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Uh, talking to uh, uh, young people of our country give me a tremendous amount of hope. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the GPPR podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're interested in more, check out gppreview.com, our Facebook page, GPP Review, and our Twitter, at GP Policy Review.